Chapter Thirteen of the Life of Kit Carson by Edward S. Ellis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. With the approach of cool weather, preparations were made for the fall hunt. When all was ready, the trappers headed for the Yellowstone, which was reached without mishap, and they immediately set their traps. The country, as a rule, was a good one for those valuable animals, but the visitors were disappointed to learn they were unusually scarce. When it became evident that it was useless to work on the Yellowstone, they gathered up their traps and made their way to the Bighorn, but failing again, tried their fortunes on other rivers in the vicinity, with no better results. It was while engaged in this discouraging work that they met a trader belonging to the Hudson Bay Company. He had been pushing operations in every direction, but the stories he told were of the same general tenor as those of the larger party. He had been as unsuccessful in the way of trade as they had been in catching the fur-bearing animals. The Hudson Bay trader, however, was confident he could succeed where they had failed, and he made such liberal offers to Carson that he and several of his companions accepted them on the spot. The first point which they visited was the Humboldt River, from which had come reports of the abundance of beavers. They began near the headwaters of the stream, and carefully trapped down the great basin. Meeting with only moderate success, they made their way to the Big Snake River. After remaining there a considerable time, the party divided, the Hudson Bay trader and his friends going northward toward Fort Walla Walla, while Carson and the larger number set out for Fort Hall. The journey thither was one of the most distressing which Kit Carson ever undertook. The country through which most of the march led is one of the most dismal wastes on the American continent. Except in extent, a journey across it is similar to that of the parched caravans across the flaming sands of the Sahara. Carson and his companions were accustomed to all manner of privations, but more than once their endurance was tried to the utmost point. The trappers had gathered some nutritious roots upon which they managed to subsist for a time, but these soon gave out, and their situation grew desperate. When almost famishing, they bled their mules and drank the warm current. They would have killed one of the animals, but for the fact that they could not spare it, and as there was no calculating how long the others would last, they were afraid to take the step, which was likely to cripple them fatally. This strange source of nourishment served them for the time, but a repetition would endanger the lives of their animals, who were also in sore straits, inasmuch as the grass was not only poor, but very scanty. Matters rapidly grew worse, and soon became so desperate that Carson said they would have to kill one of their animals, or else lie down and perish themselves. At this trying crisis they discovered a band of Indians approaching. Perhaps the hapless situation in which all were placed left no room for enmity, for the red men showed a friendly disposition. The high hopes of Carson and his friends were chilled, when it was found that the Indians were in about as bad a plight as themselves. They had barely a mouthful of food among them, and when besought to barter with the whites, they shook their heads. They had nothing to trade, and while they felt no hostility toward the suffering trappers, they gave them to understand they could not afford any help at all. But Carson had fixed his eyes on a plump old horse and never did a shrewd New Englander apply himself more persistently to secure a prize than did he. Kit's companions put forth all their powers of persuasion, but in vain, 
and they advised Carson that he was throwing away his efforts in attempting the impossible. But Carson succeeded, and when the equine was slaughtered and broiled, the trappers enjoyed one of the most delicious feasts of their lives. They filled themselves to repletion, and felt that the enjoyment it brought was almost worth the suffering they had undergone to obtain it. When their strength was recruited, they resumed their journey, and a few days later reached Fort Hall. There they found abundance of food, and received a cordial welcome. In a brief while they were as strong as ever, and eager for any new enterprise. Hundreds of bison were in the neighborhood of the fort, and Carson and his friends slew them by the score. Indeed, they kept the post well supplied with fresh meat as long as they remained there. The animal almost universally known as the buffalo is miscalled, his correct name being the bison, of which there are droves, numbering, it is said, as high as a hundred thousand. The flesh is held in high repute by hunters, and not only is nourishing, but possesses the valuable quality of not cloying the appetite. The most delicate portion of the animal is the hump, which gives the peculiar appearance to his back. That and the tongue and marrow bones are frequently the only portions made use of by the hunter. The hide answers many useful purposes. All know how much a buffalo robe is appreciated in wintry weather by those exposed to cold. It serves to form the Indian's tents, his bed, parts of his dress, and is sometimes made into a shield which will turn aside a rifle-ball that does not strike it fairly. Hundreds of thousands of bisons are killed annually, myriads of them in pure wantonness, and yet enormous droves may be encountered today in many portions of the West, where it is hard for the experienced hunters to detect any decrease in their numbers. Some of the methods employed to slay bisons are cruel in the extreme. Many a time a large herd has been stampeded in the direction of some precipice. When the leaders found themselves on the edge, they have endeavored to recoil, but there was no stemming the tide behind them. The terrified animals literally pushed the leaders over the rocks and then tumbled upon them. In a little while, the gully or stream would be choked with the furiously struggling creatures, and hundreds would be killed within a few minutes. The bison is as fond as the hog of wallowing in mud. When he comes upon a marshy spot, he lies down and rolls about until he has worn out a large and shallow excavation into which the water oozes through the damp soil. Lying down again, he rolls and turns until he is plastered from head to tail with mud. Though it cannot be said that it adds to his attractiveness, yet the coating no doubt serves well as a protection against the swarms of insects, which are sometimes terrible enough to sting animals to death. Those who have viewed the scraggy specimens in the menageries and zoological gardens would scarcely suspect the activity and power of running possessed by them. The body is covered with such an abundance of hair that it looks larger than it really is, while the legs appear smaller. But the bison not only can run swiftly, but possess great endurance. They will often dash at full speed over ground so rough that the more graceful horse will stumble. When wounded by the hunters, a bull will sometimes turn in desperation on his persecutor. Then, unless the horse is well trained, serious consequences are likely to follow. The plunging thrust of his stumpy horns perhaps rips open the steed, sending the rider flying over the back of the furious bison who may turn upon him and slay him before he can escape. 
This rarely happens, however, the bison being a huge, cowardly creature which prefers to run rather than fight, and a hunt of the game in these days often takes the character of wholesale butchery in which no true sportsman would engage. End of chapter 13